Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast Survivor Story Series, our guest is Shia Joyner, a survivor of childhood domestic violence and coercive control as an adult. Shia joins us today to explore the ways in which witnessing childhood abuse has shaped her perceptions about love, informed her relationships, and impacted her own experience of domestic abuse. We also explore the ways in which therapy has played a role in her own healing and in helping her develop a consciousness of the dynamics of abuse, which are necessary tools to stop the cycle. Welcome, Shia. Hi, thank you for having me, Terry. So you're joining us for one of our Survivor Stories series episodes in recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And we want to be able to use this opportunity to highlight not just your own story, but the ways in which your story was informed by different experiences that you've had that cause generational trauma and create these generational trends of socializing girls and children to accept abuse. So let's start there. What was your childhood like in terms of your exposure to relationships and what you thought was healthy or unhealthy? You know, that's um, a very deep question. I mean, I've been in therapy about that for like the past decade. Growing up, I felt absolutely normal. I had an amazing father, an amazing mother. They both worked and, you know, life was great, in my opinion, as a child. Um, they did fuss a lot. They did argue a lot. Um, there were times that, you know, my dad was abusive with my mom. However, I just thought that was normal. Even in the fear in it, I thought it was normal. I, my father's no longer living, and I love my father to this day. But growing up, he was the best thing since sliced bread, you know? Um, what I've learned to understand now is that growing up in a home like that has empowered me today to not tolerate junk from any man. You know, like I have a daughter and I have a son and I refuse to be in a situation where my children will see me talked loudly to, screamed at, and definitely not um, physically violated. Um, and it all stems from my childhood of seeing this. Even though I grew up thinking that was normal, I knew internally it wasn't seeing my mother cry, seeing the fear in her face. Um, and as an adult and learning that she also grew up in a home where there was violence, I can clearly see now how domestic violence just does not stop or the apology that's given or the gift that you receive after, it, it doesn't stop it. It continues for generations. So as the woman I am today, I've, I've noticed that about myself that that was a flaw within me that had to be fixed from my childhood of understanding and unlearning, not a flaw, but unlearning what I had been shown to be normal. There are relationships where there is no screaming. There are relationships where you don't have to be in fear. It is not normal to sometimes just get slapped a couple of times. It's, these things are not normal. There are relationships that do exist without this. Long journey to me, for me to unprogram that way of thinking. Can you describe 
what your sort of socioeconomic background was. Was was money a factor in contributing to stressors? Money was not a factor. Both of my parents had really great jobs. Um, grew up in the South. Grew up in North Carolina, actually. Went to some of the best schools. Mom always had the latest car. Always had the clothes. And, you know, we took summer trips every summer. You know, my dad worked a couple of jobs with, along with his full-time job. As a child, we did not lack for money. That wasn't... Within, within the family dynamics, though... You know, my mother did make less than my father. And I remember one time being 15 and asking her, why don't you just leave him if you're unhappy? I just didn't understand it. I was like, if you're so unhappy, why don't you just leave? And she said to me, I don't make as much money as your father. If we leave him, we're going to have to live in an apartment. If we leave him, you're going to have to go to another school. If we leave him, you're not going to be able to get a car when you turn 16. And it didn't click to me then. I thought being in an apartment with a pool was cool. I didn't know having a home, (laughs) you know, was more important. And I didn't understand what she was saying to me was without him, I don't feel I can maintain or survive. As an adult, I get it. But at the age of 15, I was so angry at her. I was so angry with the fact that, you know, my friends live in apartments. They have pools. It's cool, you know? thought it was cool. I thought living in an apartment was cool. I didn't understand the role as mom and wanting your children to have more than what you had at any sacrifice. I did not understand that. I was just like, oh, shut the hell up crying, mom. Like, if you don't like them, leave, you know? What she was saying to me is I do not have the economic strength to survive. She was looking at how am I going to send you to college? How am I going to keep this lifestyle? How am I going to do the one thing that we as moms want to do, give you the best this world has to offer? Well, wasn't there also some level of status in there that she wanted to maintain? Oh, absolutely. That is me giving you the the kind version. Um, my mother definitely with her Volvo, with herself, her, her car phone, because they weren't cell phones then, but her car phone mounted in her phone and, you know, getting a new lease every three years, you know, she definitely wasn't ready to give up that lifestyle. She definitely wasn't ready to give up the responsibility that the only bill she really had to pay was the cable bill. <laughs> you know, if she were to have left, would there have been difficulty in helping to maintain just basic necessities like food and clothing and shelter, given her background, would that have been difficult? Absolutely. My mother is an amazing woman, but she did not have, you know, a bachelor's degree, you know, so she worked a blue collar job and her lifeline was basically with working overtime. So, you know, she would work overtime around the holidays, but she didn't have to work overtime as a way of survival. You know, you know, love my mother dearly. However, she did not have to balance the finances of the home. My dad did all of that. And she only paid one bill, and that was the cable bill. Everything else was ballet, practice, gymnastics. All of those things were things that she financially paid for. I'm a single parent, and balancing that, um, the finances of what activities your kids can take versus paying the rent or what activities your kids can take versus paying, you know, school tuition. I understand it now. 
I did not get it then. And doing it all on your own, there are things financially you have to sacrifice. So yes, there would have been huge differences in our lifestyle. You know, my mother, from the status perspective, would not have wanted to be on public assistance. She would not have had the courage for bruising her ego to actually go get food stamps or to use a state-funded program because that would shatter what the image she had built of her family and her life and how perfect she was, you know? You know, you've talked about feeling angry at your mom for observing her being sad and her response to her, your, to your father's behavior. What made you angry? Was it you felt like unsafe and you felt like she wasn't protecting you? What was behind your feelings towards her? Looking back at that and going through the therapy I've been through, um, her victimization of her situation. My father was an extremely entrepreneurial, encouraging man by nature. And his motto was, you know, you could fix anything if you, if you want to change something, just change it. So growing up in a family where you have one parent, although he is the abuser, who also is optimistic and encouraging and in your mind is the light, you know, of like how to be successful And you see your mother who in your mind looks unsuccessful in regards to, well, if it's that bad, just leave, just change it. It just seemed so simple to me. My anger was not that she didn't change it, but my anger was the fact that she didn't try to change it. She didn't take that leap of faith. My father will always say like, and just go for it and do something different. She refused, in my mind, you're refusing to change. You're refusing to do anything. You say you don't like him. You say you don't like this. Just leave. You know, it sounded so easy and simple that I just got tired of hearing her pain, hearing her story and hearing her talk horribly about someone that in my mind was the first relationship I'd ever had with a man, you know, my father. So looking back, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying, that's the perspective that you had growing up. Looking back now as an adult, how has your perspective towards your mother's situation shifted, if at all? It's shifted in various ways because becoming a woman and falling in the same trap of being a victim, but actually leaving and incurring all of the financial hardships that come along with it and making the sacrifice, you know, at times... I still have a little bit of anger with her because, you know, we are decades later and she hasn't cured herself from the patterns of the type of man she chooses to be with, which, you know, when you do the work and you're constantly doing the work every day, it's sometimes hard to understand when it's your mom You see her at the age of 70, still in the same space of being around men that aren't nice or kind to you. You, I I want her to love herself more. So my anger is not anger at her. My anger is I want you to love yourself more. I want you because I did it. And yes, it was hard. Yes, you were right. It was hard, but I did it. So if I did it, you totally can do it. So what's the, what were the factors that contributed to your own ability to, to heal and to recognize, to build that consciousness? I'm still healing. It's a daily activity. 
for me, once I started to understand that all of my entrepreneurial things and all of the things in life didn't matter, you know, like the stuff and the things and the success didn't matter. And that the load of having two children in Manhattan was so heavy and prayer works. I had to really dedicate to myself of like, do you really want this? Like, what is it that you really want? Because you can no longer keep waking up every day and only being happy for like five minutes out of the day. And then having something this little happen and your reaction to it in regards to anger is this, you know, what is that about? Like, you know, one of the key eye openers for me was when I was diagnosed with anxiety. <laughs> and is I'm laughing because not at anxiety, but when I was diagnosed, I was like, that's what anxiety is? I thought that was life. You know, <laughs> I was like, I was like, there's medicine I could take for this? Like, are you serious? I thought this was just being a mom, you know? The word anxiety and understanding within myself, I I'm not one that is in love with taking medicine to heal things. Um, I do respect if, if, if the medicine works for you and you do need to take it, yes, take it. I had an inner battle of well, what other ways can I heal myself and how else can I heal? Because, okay, you've diagnosed me with anxiety and I'm taking this pill you're telling me to take every day, but my anger is still active. My anger is still alive. Like, what is that? You know, therapy was my first step and then yoga was my next step. And those, those things are my medicine. And you know, there are times where like my therapist has moved. So I'm six months of trying to find a new therapist in the middle of a global pandemic where, you know, talking about my childhood just does not seem important to either <laughs> right now. But the combination of those two for me were like the glue that started to pull it all together. Meaning, okay, so you're no longer with your abuser check mark, right? You've moved to a whole nother state, check mark. You've done the work, mom. Your kids are in great schools, check mark. You know, you, you can financially afford things for yourself, check mark. What is wrong with you? Why are you still not happy? Why are you still not content? Why are you still not happy when you see yourself in the mirror? You know? One of my intellectual and spiritual inspirations is Bell Hooks. <laughs> and I love you know, her th book series on love, right? And so all about love, the self-love being basically the foundation for healthy relationships because it's this lack of self-love that um, makes us either attracted to people who are giving us the performance of it or not letting us, you know, maintain healthy boundaries when our minds or spirits or bodies are being violated. And, the, and, you know, you use the word wrong, like what's wrong with her? And I feel like that's so much of what society puts on us, right? That's kind of like this series that we're working on right now is on sex, womanhood, and femininity. And I think a lot of the conversations that I've had really reinforce this concept to me that to be a woman is to not be protected, to not be safe, to not be valued and whole. And to that expect is to oh is to be is to be blamed <laughs> because we had just had a discussion, you know, with an author who wrote about who wrote this book, Why Women Are Blamed for Everything. And so we even we blame ourselves and we blame each other. And yet there's this whole system 
that sets it up where we're not equal. And that I think you speak so much to the, you know, systemic inequities that informed your childhood, that there's economic inequities. Obviously, we didn't talk about the racial inequities, but those economic inequities are we are exacerbated by racial inequities. And so, you know, we we look at people who are victimized and not really so much as as we should at the system. And so, I don't know, I think it's hard, you know, for people to move from a space of being violated and hurt to learn how to love themselves if they've never been properly loved. And it does require therapy, I think, you know, a really good therapist to teach you how to do that for yourself. And so, you know, I don't know, this is, there's no formula, I feel like. (laughs) Book and you know I was reading all these self help books Abraham Hicks every morning you know all, and all of these things are definitely helpful but there's no prescription for healing from this and the the only prescription is you have to really like go really deep inside and like that is something that is so hard to do because usually when you see the cookie stuff you're like oh no that's not me I don't blah, 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 you know. But you're like, you have to be able to understand and say, yes, that is me, but why? And that's why I say, like, I am a work in progress because every day I'm still having to, I no longer blame myself, but I can identify within myself when I see it. Oh, that's that trigger. That's where that's coming from. If you don't know the triggers or if you're not with someone that can help you identify those triggers. And that's one thing that I'll also say is therapy is a way to stop talking to people around you that we consider family and friends because they don't know how to really either say the things we need to hear or help us identify those triggers or or connect the dots as to why. I had to stop talking to family and friends about, can you believe what he did now? And can you believe like those conversations are not healing? <laughs> you know, they're not healing. Um, which is, which is, is, is I'm, I'm actually right now in California helping a friend heal through something. And I had to tell her, and I can only say this because it reminded me so much of me. The only thing I can give you as a gift of a friend right now is to not sit idle with you and complain about what happened, but to help bring solution to where you're going. Because we can sit in our minds for years, replaying the loops of, what the person said, what, why you're in the situation you're in, how it hurt you in regards to not from a healing space of how the hurt is going to heal you, if that makes sense. Yes, so therapist is needed. And I think also what, we're, what we try to do is to really plant the seed around being educated of systemic sexism, that there are these structures so that we're not blaming ourselves and we're also not only seeing our experiences as unique to us. So there, that there's lots of people based on whatever differences you know, they have, whatever othering they're defined by, who are going to be called out and treated differently and less than. And so I think it's important for us to, to see these connections so that we can also you know, start the process of self-education and self-awareness and self-examination, but also to be able to be empathetic towards other people because we have so much more in common in terms of our experiences as humans being oppressed (laughs) in different ways. 
Let's talk about how your experience then shaped your choices when you had really when you started to have relationships. What was the lens that you had when you had relationships? What was, you know, sort of the pattern of kinds of behaviors that you experienced that were good or not so good? And how did that impact you? You know, therapy is one thing I'll say that's helped me even identify those common denominators. It goes back to childhood. I was raised to believe that economically the man's role is to be a provider. And that visual that I was taught is that he pays all the bills. And within that, you are sometimes disrespected, whether it's with his tone, whether it's physical abuse, whether it's emotional abuse, and whether it's he's uh, faithful. So post leaving um, my abuser and getting back into the dating space, I absolutely knew that if a man was uh, emotionally or physically abusive to me, not dealing with it. I knew that off the rip, like no tolerance with that, like, no, not doing it. What I did not understand is the economic abuse part that I was still connected with, which stemmed from me being shown growing up, this is what a man does. He pays the bills. Your money is for you to do what you want to do with it. So what I found is relationships post-leaving, although I was not mentally or physically abused, I definitely was emotionally abused in regards to you're here and I'm here. And I really took on the role of I must support my mate, be the best version of himself so that the finances can stay afloat to bring happiness into the home. Meaning, you know, these aren't his children and I must help because that's my value and that's my worth. Retrospect now to where I am as a woman today. Yes, I do want a mate. And I demand that a man that I'm with can provide for himself, (laughs) meaning financially, spiritually, mentally, there's not a codependency. In regards to my economic uh, value and strength, I have to economically provide for myself, by myself at all times. And what what I see is that what I, what I can see is, is a part of the healing process from any abuser. If you don't, any survivors, you don't heal from those elemental things, even with your economics and, and understanding how to be economically strong, the patterns will continue with the next relationship. It's still going to be some form of abuse, which goes back to your point that what we were saying earlier, self-love is such a heavy two words put together. They're so heavy. Because self, just within self, there's economics within that. There's all of these like spaces where you have to be secure and strong to have sense of self on all facets. Does that mean, you know, you need to have like 20 million in the bank? No, but it does mean you need to understand that where each dollar goes to, you know, how to save, you know, what your economic future plan looks like. What, you know, how to put $5 away every day for that goal, how to set these goals and and what it's going to take, you know, because when you get to the space and I can say this for myself of like, you understand your budget and you understand what's needed to exist financially, it definitely changes who the hell is in front of you. And if they, they are even, and I'm not saying that he has to be a billionaire, but it helps you understand, well, if my self equation equals this from a financial standpoint. 
I surely can't take on someone whose self whose self is not equal or at par to mine. That means if he has less than you and you have to hold him up, that's going to bring you down. You know, if he has more than you and has you convinced that, you know, you need him to exist or if you if he has more than you and you look at him as my existence is because financially he's well off, that's abuse all over again. Is it and it might not be as um impactful of being with a verbal and emotional abuser who's also economically abusing you as well, but it is still a form of control. It is still a form of you not having a full base and connection with self-value and self-worth, where you'll find yourself compromising to things you would never do simply because you want the security. Right. And it's really a false security. So you're really so you're highlighting basically the role of finances and economics in either reinforcing or exacerbating existing power dynamics in a relationship. So for you, if you as a woman, you have independence, economic independence, a potential partner comes with uh, vulnerabilities economically that threatens your your agency, your independence, and it creates vulnerabilities in your potential relationship. You know, I agree with that because if in a heterosexual relationship, there's already structural inequities. So women generally make less depending on their, you know, job. There's a wage gap. There's a wealth gap. Um, there's, you know, all these other inequities that are exacerbated if you have children and childcare and maternity care and you know, healthcare, all of that. And then if you bring into the equation um, financial vulnerabilities that exacerbate those structural inequities, then it makes you in some ways more likely to be vulnerable emotionally and otherwise. Like you were talking about this codependency. And so, so you, you talked about this person, you know, being in the past. What was it that led you and how long were you with, with him? Four years. Okay. And how long ago was this? This was eight years ago. Two young children. And I had made that leap of faith and I had left. I had left my abuser. And this person is, a, is an amazing human. He's a great man. He, had, he did not wrong me in any way. However, I did not take that space to grow, to actually heal. And I was fearful. How am I going to raise these two children without a man, without a mate? How am I going to do this? You know, love must have, a, 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 I must love a partner that is stronger than me financially, Right. Or, the, or, you know, I must, if, if this person loves my children and they financially provide for my children, they must love me, right? But, you know, when you're coming so fresh out of a relationship of abuse, do you really know what love should look like? You know, do you really know? Have you really loved yourself? Yes, you've made the step to leave, which is the biggest step. But the, the work that it takes to, to heal and actually figure out what does love look like to me? What does it feel like to me? How have I shown up for myself today and done something kind for myself? What, what experience have I had 
only with myself. Like, you know, because sometimes as a mom, you know what I'm talking about. We give, 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 and we give love. We give support to everyone around us. But that, that space of pouring back into us of like being able to answer the question, how do I love myself? That is a tough question for a lot of women ex to answer because at times you don't even know yourself enough to know what you need to be loved. So I think this is a good place to sort of revisit your relationship with the father of your children because you you refer to him as your abuser. So what was it in that experience, you know, that was abusive? How did it impact your children? And what was the impetus or catalyst for you to decide to leave? Because so many people struggle with that, you know, time and time again. And on average, it takes seven to nine times for someone to leave an abusive relationship. So let's start there. Looking back, they, I have learned through therapy that the way, uh, the tone and how people speak to me is very triggering. With the father of my children, he, his tone is very boisterous and loud. And even before, you know, the other forms of abuse even started, I would always say, like, stop screaming at me. And his response would say, this is how I talk, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I'm not laughing out of, you know, giggles. I'm just saying, you know, that is how you talk. OK, but please stop screaming at me. There was never the space of him even understanding I'm screaming <laughs> at someone. So that led to, you know, a slap here or there where because of how I was raised, a slap is kind of normal, right? Like we made up after everything is great today. He said he was sorry. Well, you know, why am I complaining? You know, for me, the first time I tried to actually leave, I actually left. He had slapped me with a phone book, which I don't know if you remember, because in our day and age, phone books don't exist They're anymore. They're very thick. <laughs> Do you remember the 500 thinly tissue-sized papers? Yes. I don't even 500 pages, but maybe, th- I don't even know the number, the, the endless amounts of tissue-thin paper while I was holding my firstborn son, because we could not agree on what type of gas drops to give my son. And this happened while our entire family was like a room away. So let me ask you, when you were talking about his voice, was it, did he modulate it in front of other people or was he, so he was always like that. That's just who he was. Okay. It wasn't like it was just reserved for you. And how did it impact other people around you? You know, other people accept people for how they are, which is a huge part of, um, in my opinion, of people not thinking they need to change because no one else complains about it. This is how I talk. Why are you complaining? Well, those other people don't care about you or care about themselves or they're laughing at you internally or they're annoyed by you and they're just not telling you. They're not spending globs and globs of time with you. You know, you could be the end of their joke, to be honest, you know, but when you when you're when you are with a person that genuinely cares about you and they express, you know, that hurts me when you say that or when you speak that way. A normal response is not to say this is just who I am. So I find even now today with um, being a, a, a survivor that, you know, has moved forward and, and has dated. If a man speaks loudly, what my 
connection to that is that could snowball into other things because there's some trigger within me that if you can't control the tone of your voice, what are the emotions can you not control? Well, as a, as a society, I think we also have attached this symbolism of, you know, of loudness with like this desire to assert domination and strength, right? And so if you're, if someone's going to be speaking loudly, they're try- there's a goal, it's usually to intimidate or to assert their authority. And so there's that signaling that they're making, even if they just happen to be naturally loud talkers. But I feel like probably there is no such thing as a natural loud talker. No. You're probably, you know, raised to be that way. We can, we can always say, well, that's just what I do. That doesn't mean it's okay. You know, like, well, why aren't you using your spoon when you eat your soup? You know, because that's just what I do. Doesn't mean it's right. You know, like, <laughs> you definitely could use a spoon. You definitely could talk kinder. You definitely, if you want to, you know, but you're right, especially as, you know, he's a man of color, you know, having dominion and having power and being able to step in a room and speak firmly is there's power in that and speaking firmly and directly is being loud and it's showing you can't be pushed over, but it also could be rude. (laughs) It also could be rude. And it, to me, it just, uh, you know, uh, my daughter will tell you, you know, people talking loud trigger. Nope. Can't do it. You said that these behaviors were normalized from your childhood. At what point did you say to yourself, no more? The phone book was no more. Because although I grew up, I've never seen someone hit with an object. You know, being hit with an object for me was like, no. I was a 24, 24 new mom, single in Atlanta, went through the system, which to your respect, it is not built for. I respect the system that it's there. However, there are all these different caveats of it's not necessarily developed well in regards to really helping someone in a time of need. You know, I pressed charges. I did everything I was supposed to do. I went to court. I cut off all communications. You know, I was, I was told by him, I I was lying. You know, I'm a liar. That never happened. He did finally admit to um, the abuse and was told to take anger management classes. He agreed to take the anger management classes, but in my opinion, our relationship was, it was done, you know. Did the anger management have any impact, by the way, from your observations? He never took them, which is, <laughs> which is very interesting with my journey because I did go back because, you know, I was raised in a home with two parents. I believe that children being around both parents is imperative. I believe, you know... You know, at the time I was, I was really attached to Christianity in regards to forgiveness and um, the readings of the Bible led me to believe that forgiveness is just something you give freely and you accept everyone into your life. But through therapy, I've realized that, no, you were lonely and you didn't want to be alone. You know, it's all in how you tell this narrative, right? You know, Jesus says we forgive. Well, if the person that you're forgiving didn't do the work to grow, do you bring that back in? 
the Bible, I don't think the Bible says that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. But in my opinion, I was lonely. I didn't want to be alone. I wanted, I thought my forgiveness would heal him. And I thought I could fix him. So I brought this person back into my life. We um, had another child and the abuse did not stop. The final straw for me was when my daughter was, I think she was one, and the abuse got to the space where it was no longer objects, but it was me, my face getting slammed into a wall. That was, for me, one of, it actually was the final straw and the things that happened after that of me seeing how family members of um, abusers really can hinder the process of abusers actually doing the work it takes to stop abusing. You know, um, that word, that's my son, I love my son, I'll protect my son. I was, I, I just had an experience with it where I realized this person is never going to stop abusing you because he has an arsenal of people around him that are supporting him. So unless you're going to fight the machine, which is why I can say that active anger when you are a victim and feeling unjustly treated because you are unjustly treated, you are unjustly treated by the arsenal of, of things around that abuser, you, you as a victim, you're like, why doesn't anyone see that this is happening? Why doesn't anyone see that this happened to me? Why are these people supporting him and no one's helping me? That is what where that therapy is needed in the beginning because that act of anger, it festers inside of you, right? It, it grows to the point where you see this abuser being protected by everyone, even the court system where the court system says, okay, well, you never took those anger management classes we told you to take two years ago, but we're gonna give you another chance. I wanna ask you, first of all, from when you're in an intimate partner violence relationship, there's a lot of people who are advocates who understand that, you know, the dynamics of that relationship is about power and control. And batter intervention programs, you know, to whatever extent they are effective or not effective, they're still the standard by which a court is supposed to offer interventions, not anger management, just so you know. So anger management is for people who can't control their anger uniformly, and it's not about power and control. It's more like a self-regulation issue, whereas power and control is a mindset problem. So I'm wondering, did you know that? Did you know that anger management should not, not be offered to abusers? I didn't know that. I was listening to my state-appointed counsel. I had family members in my ear telling me that the solution is just to pray pray the devil off. You know, I'm in the South, you know, not to victimize myself in that space. This had never been in a space I had been in before. So knowing how to navigate it and knowing, you know, what to do when I have two children and I'm still in love with the idea of a family, you know, I'm still in a space of naivety where, you know, um, I can help him. You know, I can, I can help him. You know, I, I saw my mom do it. I can totally help him. Why won't he listen to me? I can help him. You know, so under, 
Understanding that the difference between power and control therapy plus anger or anger management, I did not know enough of the difference. I just knew that this person was insulated and so much so that my bandwidth went more so to fighting the machine versus finding resolution. You know, he cut me off financially, did not help at all any with any finances for two years, you know, had to go to court for that. So I'm fighting for financial support. I'm fighting uh, of just how to exist and raise two children, you know, under the age of three. I'm fighting to hold on to a business that I had started, you know, that was my only source of economic empowerment. And on top of that, I'm detaching myself from a person that I thought I actually loved and actually loved me. So when I look at advocacy, I feel that advocacy really needs to understand the victim is going through a lot. And that act of anger is real, you know? So so looking back, you said, you know, one of the things you were struggling with is the fact you were trying to reconcile this person's behavior towards you, someone who you loved and who you thought loved you. Do you think looking back that he loved you, that he was capable of love? No. Um, and I say that simply because I left Atlanta in 2010. I left my abuser in 2007 and it is 2020 and he uses the same tactics, <laughs> the same exact tactics. And it's comical and I can laugh about it because I don't engage with it. I can see clearly um, you can't control me with my finances anymore, right? You know, you are court ordered to pay a certain amount every month. I've never even asked for more. I just, I, I feel very confident in myself that I can provide for my children. But their argument is about the amount of money that they have to pay every month. You're fussing about things that you should just do. You know, um, you can't control me because I no longer live in the state that you live in. So the only device that he has is to control me through my children, which I also laugh at because I am clearly aware that all beings get to a space of healing. And even though they're children, they will soon have to journey a path of some sort of healing on their own, right? You know, we, we try as moms to be the best and give and protect them from everything, right? But there's going to be some damage somewhere where they need healing. And at that space, I feel very confident that the universe and what I have poured into my children, as well as what they've witnessed, I can't worry about that right now, right? All I can do is show up and be me and not engage with your energy of allowing me to get out of character. So you can say, you see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? She's the crazy one. She's the crazy one. Did you see how she responded? She used to say, I raised my voice. Now look at her. She's screaming. You know, you know the game I'm talking about, right? Yeah, that's it's um, like uh, what Trump and his, you know, yes. compatriots are doing every day. The gaslighting and the false accusations, disinformation tactics. The gaslighting, <laughs> their narrative of the story, you know, um, being a survivor, you have to have a thick skin to all of it. And you have to understand energetically, you have to understand what you're dealing with. I feel like Nancy Pelosi at times. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not taking that, but I'm not even going to fuss with you. I'm going to speak kindly. I'm going to not engage. I'm going to say thank you so much to every rude thing you say. 
because I understand what you're doing. You've been trying to do this for like the past 13, 14 years. I think I know what's going on now, you know? Well, given that this episode is going to be aired during Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I want to address some of the trends in policies that are happening in this space and get your thoughts on some of them, because I'm actively, and my organization, the Engendered Collective, is actively working on some of these issues. So within New York City, in, this, in the U.S., the criminal justice system def- defines crimes by one-time incidents. So if I slapped you, that's a crime in theory, but the context almost doesn't matter in some ways, or the context of the relationship. So if you were the one who was like threatening me, you know, and has been in a, we've been in an unequal relationship for a long time, a coercively controlling relationship, but at some point I slap you out of like, you know, a trauma response, you could in theory call the police on me, I'd be arrested and probably go to jail. But because coercive control is not, a criminal offense in this country as it is in other parts of the world. The definition of abuse where it's holistic and it, it, it aggregates all of the different harms and the patterns of inequities in a relationship where there's one person with more power and one person with less. In that situation, the person who's doing the slapping would not be considered the perpetrator, but under our laws it is. And so what's happened is the criminal justice system, because it's one-time incident crime-based, and because most domestic violence falls under misdemeanors, like unless you're attempting murder or actually committed murder, which is a felony, you know, most battery and assaults are misdemeanor crimes. And, And so what's happening is a lot of people who are in this victim advocacy space are saying, if we look at the statistics of just homicides only, In New York City, where we both live, the trends are that homicides with taking, you know, setting aside COVID. (laughs) Prior to COVID, the trends were that homicide rates were decreasing, but they were increasing if you look at the domestic homicides. And of those domestic homicides, approximately half of them were committed by men of color against women of color. And so this intersection of systemic racism and poverty that affects that population of homicide victims led to the city to consider some alternatives to incarceration. So they wanted to create pathways where victims who didn't want to have their perpetrator go through the criminal justice system, for example, could have alternatives. And some of these alternatives included and they were very well support and they're very well supported i should say by people in the in the criminal justice system because they quote unquote don't want to put any more black and brown men in prison and there's they're responding to women of color in these communities who are saying we don't want our men to be put in prison either because we need them to help support the family and feed the kids and and so these you know one of these interventions is restorative justice, which uh, responds to exactly what you said, like your idea that I want to fix my abuser. That's actually a quote by someone, you know, who said, I want to fix my abuser. And, and a lot of the terminology in restorative justice is, you know, um, comes out of like indigenous 
um, transformative justice practices where they try not to stigmatize. And so someone like, you know, I use the term abuser because my abuser is an abuser and he continues to do so, you know, but, um, but in that space, it's about the act, not the person. And so they've transformed the language. So instead of abuser, it's person who does harm. And then in recent conversations I've had with someone, it was person who chooses to commit violence. And then another space, it was person responsible. So, you know, I have my own opinions about this um, in language and and whatnot. But uh, given what you've stated now about exposing some of the systemic inequities, gender inequities that affect women, you know, the financial considerations that keep someone in a relationship, what do you feel about these interventions? What are your thoughts? This is a loaded one. <laughs> so many levels to this. <sighs> you know, I, okay, gosh, this is loaded. Okay, so as a survivor, I have to say that there has to be some sort, okay, so the, the, the victim comes and I get it. You don't want to disrupt the family, right? You want your life to continue going exactly how it is. That's not reality. So to really think that there is some sort of solution where these parallel things can happen at the same time and there's no disruption, from my experience, I don't see that as an option. Now, I do not want any more Black or brown men incarcerated that does not mean that black and brown men get a pass for being abusers. Because if you're an abuser to someone who you know is weaker that cannot fight you, there could be things that escalate within you where you'll end up incarcerated for something else anyway. Now, we don't have a crystal ball to say that's going to happen and we can't use uh white colonial tactics and just say, well, if you did this once, you should go away forever. But as a survivor, you know, someone that hits you once is going to hit you again, you know, um, unless they, too, really dive deep. So the programs around this, everyone is not ready for whatever program or whatever, whatever solutions are put in place at the time of entry. Meaning if the victim really just wants this coasting of life and doesn't understand that their life will be dismantled before they can get to a space of healing and a space of being away from their abuser, I don't know how to move forward with a solution. Because if, if, if you don't truly cut yourself off from the abuser and understand that, and I'm not victim blaming and I'm not victim shaming, I'm not putting all the work on the victim, but I do want the victim to have the life she deserves. And I don't believe that any justice system is going to give her that. I want the abuser because I want everyone to be the best versions of themselves. I want the abuser to be able to have an outlet to heal from whatever it is they need to journey through to understand that this is not an acceptable form of, of, of treating anyone, anyone in their life. I want these two groups of people to have the space to be able to receive what's needed. But I do understand time and space. And with time and space, 
we can't dictate that today is the day that you, she are ready for this, right? This is going to, I don't know the solution. And you've got me really thinking of like my journey and you've got me thinking about what I went through. Well, let me, let me just tell you, I mean, you know, I'll share a piece too that I wrote about this with our conversation, but let me just tell you what some of the quote unquote advocates in this space are suggesting, right? This is, runs parallel to defunding the police and the work that we're doing around trying to criminalize coercive control. So we believe for, at the Engendered Collective that you can do both, that you can, you can reduce racist policing <laughs> and hold racist and uh, people who are engaging in police brutality by holding them accountable and changing the incentives and changing like the, the assessments and the evaluations and all of that. And you can also increase accountability for survivors of gender-based violence, domestic abuse, and coercive control by redefining in our laws what domestic violence is. So it's not based on one-time incidents, it's based on a pattern of of behavior so that it's more clear who is the perpetrator and who is the victim. And if we were to do that, then a whole bunch of people, including white men, middle class and upper class men whose behaviors currently are not illegal, would be susceptible. And hopefully if the, you know, to being criminalized, and if we can properly interpret those laws and enforce them, then over time, all perpetrators are going to be disincentivized to abuse because they know that the laws are going to be used to hold them accountable. And then over time, those black and brown men who are doing so will also be disincentivized. And of course, this needs to be in conjunction with all forms of anti-oppression efforts, right? Social justice efforts so that we are addressing housing inequities and healthcare inequities, environmental inequities, educational based on race. And so when all of these things are being addressed in addition to what we're saying, then those opportunities for people of color and women of color and women to be able to uplift ourselves to the same level as white men in this country will hopefully equalize, you know, some of the inequities. But I want to say I share that with you because what one of the solutions, interventions that people have suggested in this space is, well, if men tend to abuse more when their masculinity is threatened, when they lose their jobs yeah. and they become unemployed and it becomes a trigger, it's a correlation with you know increased domestic um, incidents, domestic violence and violence itself, then what we need to do is give them less reason to abuse. So let's redirect some of the money from the policing criminal justice system to communities of color where we're giving men in those communities more job training and more skill building so they will be less inclined to abuse. That's not the solution. You know, the reason why this is so heavy is that for me in particular, when I finally left and went to court the second time, and this is when um, I was in court for financial support and all of those things, I had the best state attorney ever. She was so awesome. And she did research. And she found out that my abuser had also had uh, a record of abuse starting 
to, I think it was, he, he had a summertime job when he was like 16 or 17 or something like that. And he slapped one of the, his female coworkers. This was at the age of 16 or 17. So his incident happened with me when he was in his 30s. So to your point, job training is not going to help this person because this is something that this person has been dealing with since they were in their teens. So putting money in a space of job training, that might not be the problem. You know, it could be that the abuser grew up in a home like mine where he was taught that this was normal. Well, what about the fact that the money is being given to someone to increase a structural inequities instead of to the woman to empower you to leave? You know, one thing that I thought, what if, you know, and this is me ideating with you, you know, because one thing that men understand or abusers understand is um, currency. So what if part of, you know, just like men have to pay child support, they have to pay emo, um, uh, physical abuse support. Meaning that, you know, because once you start taking money out of someone's paycheck every every week, where, you know, you can, you can explain why you have to pay child support, but can you explain why you have to pay domestic violence survivor support? You know, because when I think about it, the first thing that we do as survivors is we run to the state for, when we leave, a lot of women run to the state for support, you know, whether that's food stamps, public assistance, child support, all of these things. And even though with the state of New York, I know they have you help them I find your abuser or, or, you know, they go after that person for money to recoup the state's expenses for helping to support the victim. At the end of the day, it's still not enough for the victim to really maintain any sort of life. So it could be, and, and this would be this would be interesting, is that within this domestic violence survivor support payment, part goes to lodging, part goes to insurance premiums. You know, it's this bill that this this abuser gets every week that comes directly out of their check, meaning uh, it is, you know, sometimes the child support that some women get that I hear, I'm like, you get $50 a week, that's crazy. This domestic violence support could really just go off of like census data of the area where, you know, or the industry that this man works in, where it's not about job training. You're going to get job training to get that second job to support the domestic violence survivor payment you need to make. Training is not it, you know, because there still is that survivor every day waking up either and take children out of it is still an individual waking up every day processing how to move forward, right? When you add children into the mix of processing how to move forward and be the sole provider, which goes back to our first point of what we were talking about, of finding that next partner you end up with and not reducing yourself to being back in the same situation all over again, which holds the victim accountable because she too or, you know, the, the victim might also be a he. We don't know the, the gender of the, the victim. The, vi- the victim actually has space to heal. The abuser actually has space to be accountable. So maybe that's what, that's what it is. We, I love we, that idea. And I think we should throw in some, some city government money there in too. Hold them accountable for when they're... Yeah. When they're <laughs> 
we need to have these conversations, right? Like, yeah. So what are your thoughts about the language? Like, how do you feel about the word abuser versus person who chooses violence versus person who commits harm? I'm a person that's big on language, and I understand why there's a clarification on what abuser is. I like the space of someone that chooses because we all have choices, right? You made a choice to harm someone else. I do feel that there is a space to be a little bit more real in this language of the impact, (laughs) you know, because there is an impact piece of what abuse, what happens with abuse that doesn't hold accountability to the, the thread of words before that. There's several people that we interviewed on the podcast who are, two are journalists who wrote books that are very well received. And one is a former prosecutor in England. And all three of these individuals have a very strong emphasis in their ideology around how to address coercive control. And part of it is recognizing the role of systemic sexism and misogyny. And the impact that they include in their language is to call people um, an intimate partner violence terrorists or gender terrorists because of so much of what's happening is a form of personal terrorism. It is. And so what what are your thoughts about that? I Because, okay, when you... When I say I love language, I mean, okay, I understand softly put parameters around the word abuse, but we're, we're not really saying exactly what this is, you know? And lo and behold, if either of us were to cause harm against anyone, we're terrorists. We, we made a choice. <laughs> um, it doesn't happen. It doesn't matter if we did it one time or two times. We cause harm to a, a group or a person because of whatever our belief is of why we did it, we chose to make that choice. When, when you speak of course of control, it is methodical. So much so that the abuser might even not even know that they're doing it, but they're doing it. If you refuse to give a woman or, a, or any individual financial support and they have two children, what do you expect is going to happen with this situation? You are purposely withholding so that they will what? Need you and come back, right? or they will submit themselves to your control, right? So I think we can get tougher with the definition. I think when you put it in the category of terrorists, it brings a higher enlightenment to urgency. You know, this is some, this isn't just, you know, oh, well, sometimes you get slapped sometime. No, this man is, um, and I don't know, I got to think on that one again of what type of terrorist, but he's, this person is terrorizing a weaker group of people. And I don't mean weaker in regards to mentally, spiritually, I'm meaning weaker because he knows or they know that they can have power and they can cause harm. So I love it. I think that we can play with that all day because there's a space of urgency and there's a space of, oh, well, we must look at this. We must address this. So I I agree. I think terrorists and, and making it, bringing in the impact of the lives of how they how they are affected after is a key that we should also add into that. But I love it. I'm, when we get off, I'm going to actually read one of their books, get the book list from you, so that I can get a better understanding of this. Because this, to me, is how we change the generational curses. How do we do that from a space of the victim can leave, but if there's still no support, 
in the society we live in, you know, our offspring still might find themselves in a similar space. It's been such a pleasure having this conversation with you, thinking and philosophizing and reflecting and also healing. I think connecting with other survivors is so much a part of my own healing journey. I hope it was helpful for you as well. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Blessings. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.